Merson has scored. Arsenal legend Paul Merson, John O'Shea, and Wes Brown are coming to Dublin. It's an exclusive off-air event. So if you want to be there, get onto offtheball.com forward slash events. Just eat the official food delivery partner of the UEFA Champions League. The Sunday Papers on Off the Ball. You're welcome along. Paper review coming at you. Before anyone on YouTube says it, we know we're all wearing the same colour shirts. We spotted it too, almost straight away. We tried to make Fionn take off his shirt and just go with a grey t-shirt, but he thought it looked better this way. <laughs> uh, Fionn Davenport, travel journalist, uh, hard shoulder uh, weekly guest, and of course, a Golf Weekly core member. Hello, you're very welcome. Hey, Joe. And Keen Tracy of the Irish Independent, you're very welcome. Thank you, Joe. Do you all routinely wear green? Well, it was my first time meeting Fionn, so I thought, you know, I better dress up for the occasion. <laughs> so we thought, what better way than to wear matching shirts? I, I, I got the text from you. Yes. It says we're all wearing khaki green, so. Yes, let's kick off May in style, I said. Yeah. <laughs> so the uh, back pages, Sun Sport, they capture uh, the two big stories yesterday, really. So it's uh, Born to Run and Born to Stun. Born to Run is a picture of Jack Conan yesterday, Leinster, through to yet another European Cup final, uh, victorious at the Viva Stadium against Toulouse, 41 points to 22. And the Born to Stun, most people thought Clare were going to the Gaelic Rounds to take a hiding, really, but they surprised everyone. Great picture of Brian Lowen, who's just got that wonderful excitement only a shot can bring. Clare 124, Limerick 220. Brian Lowen hailed uh, relentless, was his word, uh, Clare, as they stunned Limerick mm. at the Gaelic Grounds. The first defeat in Munster for Limerick since 2019. Uh, is there the possibility, if you were to adopt the role of the soothsayer, that at some point in midsummer, um, the somebody either captain, senior members of the team or the manager will go, yeah, it was the defeat to Clare. That's the one that really kind of reminded us, you know, that four in a row, that's the ambition and that's the way we had to go. Yes. Never again, they said. Yeah. <laughs> I suspect that will be the case. Sunday Mirror have a picture of uh, smiling Jim Ratcliffe. So, uh, oh man, Ratcliffe's new five billion pound plus offer outbids shake. Uh, but two of the Glazers would stay on the board. So Simon Mullock here, Manchester United fans facing the nightmare scenario of at least two of the Glazers family continuing to take money from the club. Uh, but it seems Sir Jim Ratcliffe is ahead in the bidding in that he has tabled offers that value the club in excess of five billion, whereas the uh, Sheikh Shasim bid doesn't quite do that. So it seems uh, Ratcliffe is, is going to uh, be successful that's the final round of uh, bids um, there's further pieces on that across the pages we have the Sunday World then cream of the cop it's a picture of Declan Rice this is John Aldridge who is a columnist in the Sunday World saying uh, Declan Rice is who Liverpool should sign ASAP this summer we have the Sunday Times they go with the picture of Jimmy O'Brien going over for Leinster at the Aviva no place like home dominant Leinster beat Toulouse to reach Champions Cup final at the Aviva and beneath that same story, Ineos leads Qatari rivals in the race to buy Manchester United. Uh, so uh, billionaire Jim Ratcliffe, who's almost talked about as the plucky underdog here. <laughs> but it seems as if because he has valued the club at over five billion, which is closer to the six billion valuation of the Glazers, that he is very much the front runner now. So uh, that's the latest development on Manchester United. Back page of the mail. Again, it's a picture from the Aviva yesterday. Dublin delight as Leinster stay on course for fifth 
uh, title with stunning win over Toulouse, 41 points to 22. Rory Keane reporting there. And uh, again, similar picture on the back page of the Sunday Independent. Touch of class, Leinster dismantle French giants in thrilling display. Keane, you were there. Leinster scored four of their five tries against 14 men. Those two 10-minute sin-bin periods completely devastating for Toulouse. Yeah, absolutely. Um, probably just showed, I suppose, Leinster's ruthless killer instinct. Um, yeah, the yellow cards were had a massive bearing on the game. I think, well, I know because I've seen it on certainly on my social media, lots of angry Toulouse fans that Andrew Porter didn't at least follow the two Toulouse lads to the sin bin for a tackle off the ball, which, you know, would have come at a crucial stage of the game. Toulouse scored a try just after that. I don't know how it was missed. They're not wrong. No, they're not wrong. Absolutely. We love Andrew Porter, but I mean, that was just a slam dunk. He has a he has a streak in him. Um a real aggressive streak that he does tend to give away a lot of penalties wasn't it in the Wales game earlier on in the Six Nations he gave away a lot of penalties um, but it's one of those things where if you take that out of his game is he the same player of course he's not but like at some stage you're kind of going to be fearful that that might end up costing Leinster or Ireland you know a big game it could be a World Cup quarter final it could be a pool game the World Cup so I just don't know how Wayne Barnes missed it look I, I don't think it would have made a difference to the end result uh, Leinster were where a, a thrilling display, I think, is what you described it there, as Joe, or someone in the papers did. But it wasn't really a thrilling game, I have to say. I thought Toulouse were really disappointing. Um, I mean, this was being billed as, well, it was the, the competition's two most successful teams, nine titles between them, and Toulouse were just totally, totally outpowered. So um, plenty of coverage in the papers about it. Like Neil Francis is kind of interesting, taking the line of, you know, what kind of ram- ramifications will this have for France at the World Cup? which is interesting because they obviously had a bit of a mixed Six Nations but the performance at Twickenham you'd have to say kind of at the end left you kind of going okay you know they're still going to be unbelievable so um, it was more evidence I think to suggest that Leinster and Irish teams have figured out how to play against the power teams um, we were kind of discussing it off air the just the sheer size of the the Toulouse second rows, Manny Miafu is 140kg and Richie Arnold is 120kg. Um, these are the kind of profiles that you know Irish teams have struggled against in the past and obviously Leinster are going to play the winners of La Rochelle and Exeter today um, and I suppose no one kind of sums up that kind of size than Will Skelton and he's been kind of Leinster's kryptonite over the last few years but I think the way they handled Toulouse was really, really encouraging. Not sure how good preparation it is for you know if we assume it's going to be La Rochelle not to be disrespectful to Exeter but I would fully expect La Rochelle to win um, so for Leinster it's all about managing the next few weeks it just it's just a crazy schedule when you actually put it down in black and white so next weekend they're going to play the Sharks in the URC quarter final if they win that they've got a semi-final then a Champions Cup final and then potentially a URC final so uh, we speak so often about Leinster's strength and depth and we're going to see that tested to the absolute core I think over the next few weeks we sure are Stuart Barnes on uh, page 3 of the Sunday Times he just notes that we saw a really open attacking semi-final five tries to two and he says there's never been a European Champions Cup semi-final with more first half points three tries for Leinster two for Toulouse there are plenty of fans who don't like this sort of stuff basketball rugby was the denigrating term applied to super rugby in its heyday but he says, here we have two teams tearing each other to pieces until the rain came. The first half looked alarmingly for some, just like Super Rugby. And I thought that was an interesting point. The evolution of the game continues. And he talked about various things as well. Some of the points you've touched on, Keane. He mentioned discipline. Toulouse conceded 28 points in the 20 minutes that they were a man down. Uh, Leinster played for the corners. 
They based their supremacy on line-out dominance. Nobody was more influential than Dan Sheehan. He also notes Jameson Gibson Park, razor-sharp mood. He kicked brilliantly as well in the absence of James Lowe. He took control of the kicking in the uh, on the right-hand side of the 22, where Lowe's left boot usually works so well. So we saw plenty of box kicks, and they were always uh, 50-50 for the uh, chasers, and it gave them territory and possession. And he does note, because if you didn't see the game, this is significant, to lose at a 6-2 split in the bench. And at 13 minutes in, their centre goes down injured. So Intimac goes to centre and Dupont, uh, the genius that he is, uh, goes to out half, which he did do a couple of weeks ago mm. for Toulouse. But the point is made across the board in Neil Francis's piece and Stuart Barnes's piece that Paul Grau, uh, the replacement at nine, uh, lacked control. The pass... Right, Stuart Barnes hurled at Willis emphasised the glaring gap in the very heart of their decision-making. So between uh, the yellow cards, which very much are, are self-inflicted, and the loss of DuPont at nine, we didn't quite get the Toulouse are much better the, this year than last year, which we were sold pre-game. Because their opening try, I thought, my God, they just mm. cut through Leinster. Leinster are, are in big trouble here. It was very similar to last season's game, even in terms of the, the scoreline at the end. And I remember after that game, Ugo Mola, the Toulouse head coach, was talking about you know how they weren't used to playing teams at this pace. So they've had 12 months to prepare for the challenge that awaited and they just didn't look any better prepared than they were this time last year. Um, we did have a translator in the presser after the match yesterday, but even my pigeon leaving Sir French was enough to get me to understand that the the French journalists were absolutely bemused by the, the substitution that Hugo Mola made because they had Retier on the bench as well and he could have come on rather than moving Dupont. So he came off the bench, like you said, Joe, two weeks ago against Lyon, which was a massive game for for Toulouse, but he came off the bench and pretty much changed the game and ended up winning it. So Hugo Mola can point at that, that it has worked in the, in the recent past, but the idea of moving like one of the best players ever obviously it's it's fair to say nearly at this age like I was thinking about it it's, it's the equivalent of moving Messi in his prime back into like um, in, into midfield you know he does it now kind of at ease but like to to move your best player the, the, Danton Dupont is so good at what he does because he gets more touches of the ball than anyone else and obviously if you're to move him out one position that's not going to happen so when you're bringing on a guy who he just what like it's very tough to replace Anton Dupont anyway, but this guy in Neil Francis kind of goes hard on it, like just didn't look up to that kind of standard yeah. at all. So that was a massive flaw, you'd have to say. So the French journalists were bemused. I'd imagine the Toulouse fans were as well. Um, but it was interesting, Leo Cullen spoke about it afterwards that, you know, I'd say a lot of people who were watching that were going, casual viewers, maybe, geez, like Dupont moving to 10, but he has done it before. Leinster had prepared for it. So it just shows you the level of detail that, that they go into. So um, yeah, Leinster full deserving of their of their win Joe you picked out a couple of players um, Bernard Jackman touches on in the Sunday Independent and other couple of them as well um, and in particular Jason Jenkins and Charlie Natoy so like Leinster obviously you know they're two of their three um, foreign players and Bernard Jackman makes a really good point that they both only have one cap each so they're not like guys who were kind of tearing it up for international rugby and he makes a really interesting comparison just in, in the last um, paragraph um, he says by the way the last 
The last interna- international Leinster signed who only had one cap was the legend Issa Nasewa, who won one cap off the bench for Fiji. And he makes the point that if Jenkins or Natai can have anything like the impact that Issa Nasewa can have, they won't be doing too badly. But it just shows you like the depth. And like someone like Charlie Natai uh, won the Challenge Cup with Leon last season. He's been on Leinster's radar for a while. To lose a player of Robbie Henshaw's calibre the week of the game you know, was a massive blow. But he slots in absolutely seamlessly and the machine keeps ticking along. Jason Jenkins was signed from Munster uh, last summer for exactly these type of games yet Leinster backs their own in Ross Maloney who's had an outstanding season continues to be one of the most herald, unheralded players in Irish rugby you'd have to say um, so you're keeping a guy like that off the bench who was signed to go up against the, the big locks um, the, the guys who I mentioned earlier Miafu and, and Arnold but yet um, he fully justified his starting place Ross Maloney did and yeah. so did someone like Jack Conan in the back row so one of the great Arts of Leo Cullen's job that I don't think gets um, enough credit is how he manages to to keep all of these guys happy because whatever about young kind of guys coming through the system, these guys are internationals, you know, and he still manages to to keep them all happy and the machine keeps chugging along. So I touched on the depth um depth that they have he Leo Cullen made the point afterwards that they are going to make changes for the Sharks game this weekend because you know you, you just can't play every weekend now you know Fiona and myself were chatting about the the sort of physicality of rugby nowadays so backing it up I, even though they won handily enough yesterday I'd imagine there was uh, plenty of sore bodies so um, got the job done but a, a very different task yeah. I'd imagine the weights in the final Fiona you keep an eye on the rugby I would say in some respects you enjoy uh, rugby punditry more than actually watching the games Uh, anything from yesterday jump out at you or happy to move on was it Uh, yeah well Peter O'Reilly points to it is is the kind of the 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 talk about how the Aviva what you had is the short of the final the premier game of 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 the championship and there's 5,000 empty seats Mm. and uh, Leo Cullen beforehand who as Peter O'Reilly says was uh, was uncharacteristically punchy about the EPCR um, management of ticketing and like and, and someone as someone who doesn't really keep abreast of how these tickets are but like that EPCR took control of the ticketing that Leinster weren't happy with the pricing structure that EPCR put in place and with tickets at 75 euro Yeah there was a bit of confusion in that it was initially reported that the starting prices were 75, but there was a glut of tickets cheaper than 75. But mm. very, very quickly, the only remaining tickets were 75 euro. And to which, and it's easy to kind of say, you know, one then leads to the other. Is is that like, so there were 5,000 empty seats because the typical Leinster fan went, nah, that's too much for me. Is that actually, do, is that something that, that kind of stands up to scrutiny or are they saying, oh, Leinster fans are rich? I'm saying this is that like 75 quid might be a lot, but it's not It's not 160 quid to go see Bruce Springsteen. No, I guess there were no concessions for children amongst those 75. And that's, yeah, and that's a, that's a significant issue for and sure. And there's also a touch potentially of Aviva fatigue in that they're at the Aviva next week for their U or C quarterfinal and then the semifinals at the Aviva and then the Champions Cup finals at the Aviva. Yeah. And so there's, there's maybe a, a bit of picking and choosing. Although this, as you say, if you want, like this is, the marquee game to lose mark- it seems shocking to it, me <laughs> yeah it was like look the, it, the atmosphere actually was quite good I have to yeah. say yesterday but for such a big game like you're so right it doesn't get much bigger in club rugby like I said nine titles between them and it was a shame like I mean I could only see obviously one side of the stadium because I was in the press box but I could see in the upper tier big swathes of, of empty seats and that's not right I mean the semi-final today is sold out in Bordeaux and like, are they t- similar prices do you know 
I'm not sure actually offhand. Um, so I thought it was it didn't reflect well on the competition, particularly whenever there was a conversion kick or a penalty kick. They would go for the low down angle behind the kicker to show the angle, and you would see the swathes yeah, of empty like seats, thousands of empty yeah. seats at this marquee game. Maybe when they're pricing these matches, they do need to think about the importance of, of um, you know, this event as a marketing tool. This competition is in decline in the eyes of many people. And here's your semi-final marquee game and you've got thousands of empty seats. I think within the PCR, they have to sit down and say, well, actually, are we over milking fans? And secondly, even if we think we're not, we need to make sure this is a sellout just for marketing purposes. My understanding is that for last year's semi-final, like EPCR would generally take control of the semi-finals. My understanding is that Leinster had control of last year because it was only a seven-day turnaround. So if you remember back to Leinster beat um, Leicester and Welford Road and you had Munster and Toulouse that day, or the, the Saturday that went to extra time. So it was only seven days. The season is structured differently this year with the World Cup and that. So, um, And it's also worth mentioning as well that like, I know the vast majority of Leinster supporters do come from Dublin, but there's plenty of them who come from the country as well. And it's not cheap to to come up to Dublin for a day if you wanted to bring kids, like you said, Joe, if you want to get trains and that. Like, God forbid, if you wanted to have an overnight in Dublin. We're seeing this in the Six Nations as well in terms of the ticket prices for, for that game. And look, the, the Six Nations game sold out. It's supply and demand where the team is going well. But like I personally know lots of people from down home in Limerick who just can't afford to come up to an international game in Dublin if they wanted to spend you the know night to cost. You Leinster fans in Limerick, do you? <laughs> no, I know for a lot of Irish fans in Limerick, yeah. So it's not cheap, you know. And like, that is absolutely we're, we're, true. And I, I'm conscious of that as well because like when you're kind of giving out about, you know, it, things not being a sellout, it's easy for someone like me to say because I'm very lucky that I get a free ticket to go into the, the press box, you know. So it's a, it's a tricky one, but it's just, it's not right that a game like that wasn't, like it, it should have been the hottest ticket in town. Like a few years ago, you would have been scraping around trying to find tickets for these games. So I was yeah. surprised that you, I was surprised for precisely that reason. I, I would have thought even as a, as a, as a rugby neophyte, I would have thought that it would be the hottest ticket in town mm. that you'd be, there'd be touts outside selling them for triple face value just to get people in the doors. Um, I mean, to the broader point, I mean, Dublin's an expensive city and that's, you know, that's just true. Uh, well, look, sometimes, I mean, uh, you have to reach a price point which is too steep for people before they realise. Yeah, 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 for sure. And there wasn't a huge amount of Toulouse fans that's worth mentioning as well because the French for the Six Nations game travelled in huge numbers and created yeah. an unbelievable atmosphere. So I would imagine a lot of Toulouse fans looked at it as well and for the same reason said we just can't afford that. Lots in the paper. So we'll get to uh, Man City. Are they too good to be loved? There is uh, Brexit being very good for Irish footballers. There's Paul Kimmage on doping and horse racing. There's an interview with Eddie Pepperell in the golf. There's a fascinating interview with uh, John Coughlin, athletics coach, uh, for instance. On the GEA front, um, <laughs> so, <laughs> the old gang playing some of the biggest hits. So Joe Brawley with a... Strong attack on the RT panel and Pat Spillane not impressed with the quality of football in the Sunday world. For instance, Spillane says, apologies for not going into depth on all the games last weekend. There aren't enough pages. There were a lot of games, to be fair. But he says, the first halves of the two highest profile football matches, down Donegal, Galway, were scum and reinforced my views on Gaelic football. They were cagey, sleep-inducing bore fests. I nearly fell off my chair when the BBC's Thomas Niblock declared at halftime in Uri that they had just witnessed a wonderful half of football. Uh, he does go on to uh, praise Galway, though, thinks they're in good shape, much better than uh, last year. Uh, as for Joe Brawley, uh, the passion is gone and we're left with a Sunday shame. So uh, does not pull any punches 
Uh, no passion, no sense of the great traditions of our games, no sense of glory, no feel for the bigger picture, no anger, no entertainment, false discussions that bear no resemblance to the reality of how we discuss football. It's a sham. Laughter is forced and cued by unfunny remarks. The, puns, the pundits, he says later on, answer safely, uh, resorting to the well-known book Nutshells for GA Punditry. It's all very weird and unnatural. Uh, he bemoans Lee Keegan for apologising on Twitter for giving Man of the Match to the wrong player. He um, initially had given it to Kieran Murta of Roscommon, but then he later on tweeted that Damien Comer should have been given the award and he explained how he had to give the uh, Man of the Match uh, midway through the fourth quarter and then it was after that that Comer came to the fore and so he apologised. He says, This naturally prompted me to worry about Keegan's mental health, first publicly apologising for his man of the match selection, worse, licking up to the Galway folk by saying you have a serious team. To be honest, I nearly vomited. And he also said, apart from this, the embarrassment caused to Kieran Murta, who must feel like a right uh, DIC with that award sitting on his mantelpiece. He says it's a perfect snapshot of the falseness and eagerness to please slash play safe that has infected the RTE studio where everyone's looking over their shoulder. By the time I was sacked, a lot of change. There was no loyalty, no sense of integrity, no camaraderie. Colm O'Rourke, Pat Spillane soldiered on for a while, but I think they hated it as they were, as it was clear they were no longer wanted. Too opinionated, too passionate, too prone to saying things they actually meant. As we watched the fun distraction of talking about football being turned into a soulless chore, the glamorous brunette, I think that's his partner, said they should bring uh, Pat back, um, is what she said when they were watching. The place is like a morgue without him. And he finishes off by saying, what's happening now in the uh, public broadcaster's studio is a dystopia dull travesty if you took wee marty out of it it would have all the atmosphere of the moon it has become a national embarrassment if lee wants to apologize to anyone he should apologize to the nation (laughs) i'd like to hear that apology and that's wow that's a mass killing (laughs) yeah everyone got some there yeah um it's a bit you know the way two things can be true but not connected to one another? So is the Sunday game and punditry in general kind of slightly tamer these days than it used to be? That's probably true as as, as some of the more fiery pundits have departed the scene. Uh, Joe Brawley is obviously one of them. Um, and that's unquestionably true. There's this kind of more measured tone taken and... <laughs> Uh, and but then so there's a certain sense you're like going yeah Joe that's 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 fair cop or that's not untrue and then but then I'm wondering it's like asking Richard Keyes Richard I need you to write a piece on how you think the Sky Sports pundits are doing Mm. you know and and the problem with that is is that with all respect it's like your views are jaundiced and, and you're jaundiced by personal experience. And, and what comes across here is, is that Joe has always has strident opinions and isn't going to temper them for any man or woman. But at the same time, there, there's a hint here is, is that like you're still smarting over being let go by RT. And I, I don't know that if I was in his shoes, I wouldn't also be smarting by it. Um, I think some of the ad hominem stuff is a bit, in poor taste, I just think, 
and also there's always the, there's a there's a literary device that that people can use. It's like a friend of mine texted me. It's like, or okay, I, I'm not saying they didn't, but it's just like, so what? You know, I have lots of friends who text me, and I don't necessarily give particular credence to what they're saying. Is is that like I, I and it's funny because hyperbole can be quite funny, but like. You know, as Eamon Fitzmaurice was droning on, a friend of mine texted, F me, Broly, I wouldn't be surprised if Fitzmaurice started into a decade of the rosary. And I'm like, okay, it's kind of mean and funny, but like, what's the point? And, and there's a part of it, I, I don't know. I, I, again, I guess I just feel is, is that like, yes, certain things are true. There's a, there's a, a it seems like a conscious decision was made to, to kind of turn down the heat. Um, does it make the Sunday game better? Does it make does it make the, the say the soccer analysis better? Maybe, maybe not. Uh, but I don't know that something like this really just kind of is anything other than Joe Brawley kind of you know just turning over old enmities and and just keeping them aflame. The Sky Sports Studio is almost the outlier these days. That mm. trend you talk about in punditry, which I'm part of, by the way, there is absolutely uh, no doubt. That the Virgin Media panel, uh, which I think does a lot of great but, stuff, is, is a very different atmosphere to Hook and McGurk and Pope. But, Sensibilities have changed. I, I wonder. I think the interesting question is amongst the audience, certainly in the in the in the hierarchies of various organisations. Uh, Sensibilities have changed, I suspect. But do the audience still really want vicious? Vicious is maybe a harsh way of putting it, but those those strident views which were very much in vogue fifteen twenty years ago. Do they? Do you suspect everyone sitting at home is like God? It has got very boring. Or and, a lot of people are. Yeah, but do you think then if we brought it back suddenly and we saw Dunphy saying Glenn Whelan, what's he got? Ferrari, you know, blah blah blah. Do you think people would say, actually, hang on, I don't feel good about that anymore? I would wager a guess here, and and to use the example of the Sky Sports Studio. Is that all those names you mentioned, your Dumphys, your George Hooks, etc., who were the strident pundits who were unafraid, they said, as, as Brawley goes, it's like, say what they actually think. Yeah. Um, the, there is, though, a subtle but all-important difference between them and the Sky Sports studio, even the, the kind of the Gary Nevilles and the Jamie Carragers and the Roy Keens, is, is that whereas you could not... Tr- uh, trust is the wrong word, but you can't say like George Hook or Dumphy or whoever, they would have a go at a player if they felt that they were deserving of a go. But they'd also have a go at the association if they felt that the association was deserving of a go. They had that fearlessness. They didn't owe anything to, to any organization other than just the viewers. It's, it's funny as a quick interjection there. The RT panel were fearless on many fronts. I don't think they can say we did a great job when it comes to the FAI. Well, they had a go. No. You don't think so? I don't think they ever said questions need to be asked about the way John Delaney is running that association. Well, questions I mean, need the, to be asked. The, not the, once. There's issues. It's not even so much issues around potential libel. I mean, is is that they the, the Sky Sports Studio are very good at creating the fight that the pundits or that the 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 the, the, the the viewers love whilst being incredibly careful never to criticise the Premier League ever ultimately these are cheerleaders for the Premier League I disagree with that you know do you? yeah I do feel Neville a couple of years ago was saying Premier League standards really dipped he was very down in the Premier League a couple of years ago 
Whereas in the last couple of years, he has said it's back now. It's really good again. I feel if there's a bad game, he says it's a bad game. I think you're being a touch harsh on him. I think Gary Neville, for instance, there are lots of issues. Um, there are lots of issues, obviously, that are hot topics for the Premier League at the moment. Not least is the ongoing yeah. takeover of Man United, but also the Saudis taking over Newcastle and what seems like ancient history now, but uh, Abu Dhabi taking over Manchester City. I think Gary Neville has been politically guarded in addressing those full on. I don't believe uh, that he has done so. He's perfectly within his, he's entitled not to, if, if, you know, I'm not suggesting. But at the same time, I just think that he is very selective. He's very selective in a clever way about the topics that he's going to get exercised about. Like, for example, have either of you ever seen Gary Neville get as exercised by anything as he did about the uh, European Super League? Proposal. No, it's true. And I think effectively he's held his hands up on the sports washing front and said, I was wrong about this for a lot of the last number of years. It's only very latterly he's, he's uh, seen the light, I suppose. An interesting one on, on Sky Sports is it does feel like over the last couple of years, both producers and even the pundits themselves can't be immune to the behemoth that is social media. It's like they're, they're working out the algorithms mm. mentally themselves. So in some of the exchanges, you can sense that they realise this is going to be the viral moment and I don't want to be the beta male here. I want to be the alpha. And and they rear up on each other. And the producers realise, oh, my God, like people are voting with their eyes. Roy Keane is the greatest pundit in the history of football. And they have really leaned in Keane to that whole area. We haven't done it as much on this side of the pond. It's it's a it's a really interesting uh, change in the guard in that. 10, 15 years ago, we used to look at the British punditry and say, my God, those poor souls over there, they, get, they don't get any arguments. They don't get any uh, tough talking pundits. We have all the panels that do that. And now it does seem to have flipped. It does, yeah. I suppose it goes back to, Joe, the, the point that you made at the very start of this um, particular conversation. Like, what do you want from your, your pundits? I, what I like about Sky Sports is uh, the football coverage um, is that you get a bit, you get both. You get the good debate because Carragher and Neville do hop off each other, but you also get the tactical analysis. And I would imagine there's a huge amount of people, I probably know lots of them, who would much prefer the old Dunphy kind of, you know, debate and the crack and all that. Yeah. Personally, I found that tiresome, particularly towards the end. I thought it had totally ran its course. And when I sit down, and God knows I watch a lot, enough matches at home across all sports, when I sit down, and maybe it's just me, but like I want to see the tactical kind of stuff. Like that's what kind of interests me. And I think Sky Sports do it very well. And like it is interesting, like Neville, I was I was at the the overlap, you know, the podcasting that they do. But they did a live show in the Three Arena a few yeah. weeks ago and got a present of tickets. And I went along and, you know, the kind of the usual kind of crack. And maybe it's the journalist in me, but like the stuff that I wanted to hear about was the United Saudi sale. Um, at, at the particular week that the the gig was on, it was huge, huge news because the bids were just going in. The Qataris. The Qataris yeah. bids, yeah. There was little to nothing about it. And I like I came away from that. Again, I don't know, like the punters in the crowd might, might have been, you know, oh, that's grand, whatever. But it was mentioned, but so briefly, briefly mentioned. And I was thinking... 
I want to hear what Gary Neville thinks about this. You know, he did come out like rail against the Super League stuff. I want to hear like how he would feel about, you know, this being taken over. And maybe was it not the right audience? There was a lot of boozed up people in the crowd and maybe they weren't all there like me looking for kind of like good insights. But I came away from that going, he didn't really address this properly at all. So I was a bit disappointed with that and probably more on kind of Fionn's side of things. I think when he came out against the Super League, unbelievable, like what him and Jamie Carragher did on Monday Night Football, wasn't it? Whereas don't quite get that same sense and obviously it's it's a bit different because he's so strongly connected to United but like what he does well is is fascinating and it's brilliant but I would like to hear more from him on it No that's fair I'm not saying he's about to be made CEO of Amnesty International <laughs> No but I, I think I think I to to give praise to how Sky Sports run their operation is, is they managed to strike a very successful balance between you know defending the product that they're there to promote, which is the Premier League football, whilst at the same time offering the viewers the red meat that so many viewers enjoy is those, is, and, uh, those clippable moments. And, and you're right, it's, it, that absolute understanding of how the algorithm works. And uh, you and I talked about this before, but it's sport, uh, it's, it's sport shown in kind of digestible chunks and digested on social media, which is... Like, even if you haven't watched Monday Night Football, and for millions of reasons, you, you can't often, um, you'll, see, you'll see the relevant clips, like, in your social feeds. Mm. And, that's, and that's such a powerful delivery mechanism for, for sports punditry. And, 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 and Sky Sports have that absolutely nailed on. They do it really, really well. Yeah. And I guess, so, on this side of the water is, is to go back to kind of Joe Brawley's criticism is it that there's a sense of like, are we missing a trick on this side? Like, is there, what's our version of that very thing that mm. Sky Sports do so well? Mm. And, and is there a sense of that, that they've overcorrected? Like, like, like I don't know. I, you get to the end where it's just like, you know, old man rails at clouds, you know? Is it like there's an element of like the angry pundit that just becomes tiresome? Yeah, and I think you can go too far the other way as well. Like, yeah. I mean, like I said, I do enjoy what Sky Sports do, but I do agree with you. Obviously, they're protecting their product, which is the Premier League, and we see that in rugby as well. Like, I would personally think that BT Sports coverage of the, the Premiership, as in the rugby Premiership, is like it almost does itself no favours because it overhypes the league itself, and then people get an inflated view of like. And we see the the champ now. I know Exeter are in the the semi final, and they could prove me wrong in a, in a few hours, but. Um, we see it with the English national team like every time you're watching a premiership game and I do watch enough of it you're being told that it's the best thing since sliced bread and it's really really not a few years ago the premiership was far far better but that's a company you know protecting its assets and trying to tell you that this is amazing when you actually get into it and it's it's really not so I think you can go too far the other way as well which is probably the point that you were making Fiona about the Premier League and Sky Sports and this is their kind of baby and they have to protect it and you know it's it's our kind of thing so um Best league in the world, Kian. Yeah, all this kind of stuff. Like it, it's it's a fine balance because I can understand why they're doing it, but I think viewers aren't stupid either. Their their eyes can tell them. And this is this is the time. I, I'm old enough to remember when Italian football, when Serie A was the envy of every football league in the world in the 80s into the 90s, and it was just everything. They got the best players. It was sexy and brilliant and and the Premier League is enjoying that obviously at the moment um, yeah so uh, uh, I don't know to go back to, to, to Joe's piece I, I feel a lot of what he's saying is, is fair cop but 
at the same time is, is the fact that, you know, that he was let go by RTE suggests that there's a there's rehashing of old grievances here. Uh, Mark O'Shea uh, joins Pat's plan, by the way. The headline of his piece in the Mail on Sunday, just to briefly touch on it, it's baffling how people pay hard cash to watch this farce. Oh, yeah. So he, he's just, I think, like us all, looking on in bemusement at so many of the provincial matches, Dublin squashing leash last weekend by 23 points. And he said, I was uh, thankful I was in my car driving to Cavan when Kerry were beating Tipperary by 20 points. And he says... Can you imagine if our overpaid friends across the water showcased their main competition by pitting Manchester City against Oldham and Liverpool against Tranmere? And yet that's what we're doing with our football championship year in, year out. And uh, it's not a new argument, but it's worth uh, mentioning this time of year as ever. Yeah, but it's also, the argument doesn't bear scrutiny because the reason why Oldham won't play Man United and Liverpool won't play Stevenage is because they've created the haves and the have-nots. And Gaelic sports, for all the ills that one can can put on Gaelic sports, is there's a there's a kind of a democracy at play here. Is is that like, look, this is in, you're in the province, so you're going to play each other, and that's just the way it goes. It's starting to feel more like a grim communism of some kind, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Um, just, this isn't a GEA interview. And we don't have time to get into the nuts and bolts of it, but it's worth mentioning just in the context of GA as a segue away from the gas. So Carl Dennehy here has done some great interviews lately in the Sunday Independent. Pages 18 and 19, he speaks to John Coughlin. Now John Coughlin's an athletics coach and he is currently coaching over in Orlando and he coaches three athletes and all three are Olympic or world champions. So he's risen to the top of his sport in athletics coaching but he just seems like a fella who'll give fairly unvarnished opinions on everything and he has experience of working in the world of GEA Andy McEntee brought him in for three years when he was Meath coach so he has a good sense of both the athletics scene here and the GEA scene here so for instance of athletics generally this is his uh, informed opinion I'd be pretty worried we've become so involved it's like a bubble we don't realise the bigger picture and how more and more irrelevant athletics is becoming of the uh, system of talent development in Ireland in athletics. There is no system from what I can see. It's a system in name only. And then he says, what about doping these days? Better or worse than 20 years ago? He says, it's hard to know. 20 years ago, you had the Balco scandal. Just because there hasn't been a Balco scandal in 23, does that mean the sport is clean or does it mean people are doing stuff they're able to hide from testing? It's a rhetorical question, I think. And then strength and conditioning in GEA. I thought this was super interesting uh, on GEA generally. So he says, of strength and conditioning in GEA, most are getting it wrong. The GA template seems to be to train three times a week on the pitch, two times in the gym. So you're going to spend 40% of the time in the gym to make them all better football players. It's completely disproportionate to the demands of the sport. And he did, by the way, as he was making his way in his career, he did work with the Dublin Hurlers and St. Pat's as well before moving abroad uh, from Irish Athletics in 2014. He didn't find the athletics scene here good. Uh, later on, he does say of the athletic scene here, it needs somebody at the top who understands the situation and has got the will to do things. You'll get the odd successful athlete like Derville O'Rourke or Rob Heffernan or Gillick, but they all did it off their own bat. It wasn't anything systematic. You can't rely on the exception. And he says, there's plenty of money there. Look at everybody employed in sports public sector. What value are they adding? Where's the money being spent? It's embarrassing. We'll do another report after the Olympics. An absolute waste of money. An exercise of people covering their ass in high up positions. It's the illusion of doing work 
rather than doing anything of, of significance and getting results. So it's a completely damning take on Irish athletics. Uh, final point on a GA training. So, like I said, he was with Mead for uh, three years and he hates the term SNC. It's, he says it's, it should be conditioning and, uh, stre- and strength, CNS. He says there aren't enough GA players conditioned. There's an overemphasis on strength. So, what does he define as conditioning? He's asked biomotor abilities, speed, strength, power, endurance, mobility, flexibility, agility, coordination. You've got to cover all of those. I think most players aren't fast and fit enough in GAA. The strength part is relatively easy. Getting a guy to put on muscle mass. The other part is harder and it's less measurable. There is a vanity element to it. Guys think, I look mostly, therefore I'm conditioned. But you get them doing a running test and it's not so good. Most GAA players haven't done proper training to begin with. So you could probably knock a second off their 100 metre time in the space of a season, which is an amazing thought, through the right training. That's the equivalent of being three or four yards faster over 30 metres on a pitch. You combine that with boosting their aerobic power and it would be a dramatic effect. Uh, he says, you got guys 29 years of age lifting weights for 10 years. What difference will a few more weights make? That's very interesting. Boom. Yeah. That's what Joe Brawley's asking for. Some unvarnished, informed opinion. Oh, that's great. Yeah, Super it's to chat. It's, it's really good. But like, I'd be a very, very casual GAA uh, watcher, but you can't help but look at the Limerick team and think that, wow, their strength and conditioning is off the charts in terms of the physical profile of these guys. It's something that Shane McGrath has touched on as well in terms of hurling you know, treating concussion more seriously because purely because like guys are getting bigger, they're getting stronger, they're getting faster. This conversation we've been having about rugby for God knows how long, but if Limerick are, you know, the market leaders, which quite clearly they are despite yesterday's defeat, then are other teams not going to look at them and see that, you know, this is the way to, to go forward? So um, I take his points that he's saying, but I'd, I would assume Limerick are kind of not part of that conversation because they seem to have really changed I think what GEA players what are demanded of GEA players it, I, again like I'm only a casual observer yeah. so is that fair to say do you think well when he lists off what he defines as conditioning uh, biomotor abilities I don't entirely know what that means but anyway sounds good yeah <laughs> strength speed power endurance mobility flexibility agility coordination I'm literally seeing a limerick curler yeah. there yeah so yeah, yeah I, w- I would think there are exceptions he says most aren't, are getting it wrong in GEA but uh, some clearly aren't. And it's interesting that guys are moving from, in terms of S&C coaches or CNS, as he prefers to call it, from rugby to hurling as well. You had Mikey Kiley, who was with the Limerick Hurliers a few years ago, and he went to Ulster um, a couple of years ago. So it just shows you that the crossover is is happening now, and that feeds into probably Shane McGrath's point that he's making in terms of hurling, treating concussion more seriously. So it's fascinating. I, I find that the crossover between sports like that and the sharing of different ideas really, really interesting, I have to say. Yeah. Uh, we should touch on... Paul Kimmage's piece, I think, just this is an ongoing uh, theme. He's been very much watching uh, Irish horse racing in particular uh, closely of late. And uh, he just highlights another case which he feels isn't satisfactory. It's on pages 14 and 15 of the Sunday Independent. Punishment fails to match the crime. He starts off by uh, talking about Punches 10 this week and there's lots of back slapping and everyone's uh, great. And uh, he's uh, not so sure it's a pretty situation behind the scenes. And... uh, he mentions William Jones, who has written a book, The Black Horse Inside Coolmore, and also The Black Horse is Dying, which is very much about doping. And uh, he got an email from him uh, during the week to highlight a case, which he teases out here. So, in short, we go back 16 months, and Elmarie Holden from Ballyhale is making headlines because she's uh, doing a great job. 
Uh, moderate success in six years as a trainer, but her true gift is an eye for great horses. Uh, so it mentions a couple of her successes. And then February 8th, 2022, the testers arrive in her yard. A month later, Holden was informed that hair samples from three horses had revealed the presence of clenbuterol, which is prohibited at all times unless prescribed by veterinary surgeons. So this is last year. Uh, year on, March 1st, the IH or B published their 565-word uh, report on the case. There's a €3,000 fine. And in effect, we uh, are told that the medication was administered in accordance with a vet's directions and that the uh, copies of prescriptions were provided retrospectively by Holden's vet, Dr. Mazzarello. So uh, Mazzarello uh, confirmed that clenbuterol was administered to treat coughing and nasal discharge in the horses for three months between September and November 21. And that period of exposure is consistent with the reports from the labs. Paul Kimmich says, what were the findings of the lab? Were no blood samples taken? What were the levels? What do the prescriptions say exactly? Was there any record of the frequency or the dosage? It must have been a nasty infection that three horses suffered for three months at exactly the same time. It was all very vague, is his sense. And interestingly, he notes as well, on the same day of the Holden inquiry, the IHRB published a biannual anti-doping report for the six months to December, and it included an unusual reference to clenbuterol. And so the warning was, it's a drug that may be misused if it's given to horses without respiratory disease, and it can lead to muscle uh, building. If clenbuterol is detected, says this report, it will be followed up and evidence such as prescriptions and associated records will be sought to confirm that it's been used only for valid therapeutic reasons. We remind trainers of their obligations to use clenbuterol responsibly with proper veterinary involvement and oversight and to document its use correctly. And Paul Kimmich says, or what? We'll fine you three grand. And he reached out to the various participants for comment and didn't receive any comment. So from uh, the point of view, I should stress, of Elmarie Holden, she was investigated. The IHRB accepted that uh, this was given by her vet and it was required. And they have very much accepted that position. Paul Kimmage is uh, pointing out there, are va- there, are, uh, there is some vagueness here on what transpired. And also he's wondering if three grand is an appropriate um, punishment nonetheless. So in general terms, it's just another part of this portfolio in the Sunday Independent over the last couple of years whereby questions are being asked about specific cases, answers aren't forthcoming and uh, it is in amongst what is a very joyous week at Punches 10 for the sport away from all that. Have you been following this? Half a bit. Um, Yeah, I mean, look, I don't know enough about Horse, I know, yeah. you know, it's like, I know that clenbuterol is administered for horses with colds and whatever, but. Um, I think you would just at this stage love to see an interview. Yeah. Or Hillier and Paul Kimmich. Just yeah. be a, a, a good Yeah, and I think that would be, it actually would be a very interesting conversation to have. Um, yeah, there's, there's a, I mean, there's an inference here as a, of an of a industry that kind of inward looking and protects its own quite yeah. well and all the rest. Um, interestingly enough, uh, just because, I mean, it's kind of, 
a really important story, but it's also, to a lot of people, it just feels so dull. But, like, the Mail have two pages on, does the Premier League have a drugs problem? Mm. You know, and again, and, and just, like, it, there's a lot in here. It's yeah. a big investigation. But the top line is, Premier League footballers are almost never tested for the banned performance-enhancing drug testosterone. Um, top flight stars can expect to be subject to even the most basic drug test as infrequently as once per season. Ooh. And oh, that's their zero, zero. that's the that's the that's their opening dart, and and then there's and it goes in and it goes. There's a lot of data, and but interestingly enough, more to the point, and it kind of echoes uh, Paul Kimmage's frustrations, I guess. Yeah, is is that the Mail have put in one two? They wanted some freedom of information acts, and uh, they were five of them refused um, on blood doping and testosterone in the Premier League tests on blood in all footballers in England. Anyway, so on and so forth. They were all refused. And the, the, the most popular reason given was disclosure would allow dopers to avoid getting caught, which seems counterintuitive. But look, the, the inference here is, is that compared to athletics, compared to swimming, yeah. is, is that uh, footballers are tested very, very sporadic. Oh, football is getting away with a lot, I think. Yeah. It's fair to say on this front. And, and, and the lack of scrutiny. So it's, the lack it's of scrutiny. welcome so it's, to see that piece. Yeah. So, and, and so they kind of, they're, they're kind of, they're, they're, they're sister pieces, the uh, mm. Paul Kimmages in, in, in the Sunday Independent and then this Edmund Willison big, big piece in the, in the mail on Sunday. I would be absolutely sure that that two-page investigation, the headline of one test per year potentially for lots of footballers the non-testing of testosterone will make exactly no impact on the news cycle I couldn't agree more yeah yeah it's and like the the doping kind of aspect is actually pretty it's shared across lots of the papers because they're talking about Man City obviously feature a lot in a yeah. different kind of you know, doping in terms of financial doping which is a big big team as well so um, I thought it was interesting to see the the different kind of takes on it you know Eamon Sweeney's writing about it Jonathan Wilson is writing in the Observer and the Sunday Independent about it and basically saying that I think what a lot of people think that, you know, City's success is slightly tainted and it has to have an asterisk next to it. Whereas in the, was it Neil Moxley, I think I picked out in the the Sunday People, I think, um, takes the total opposite um, that we should all be jumping up and down, hailing these guys and barely even mentions where their, their money has kind of come from, you know, which is which is not the right way to go about it either, I don't think so. I thought Jonathan Wilson's piece, because we chatted to Jonathan about this during the week Mm. and he pretty much uh, teased out our conversation on page 11 of the Sunday Independent and it's in the Observer as well. Our city getting too good to be loved. Premier League in danger of becoming a one-team show. So, I mean, the the point of the piece is uh, a thought I suspect any football fans listening have had. He says, and he starts by saying, Manchester City are brilliant. They can win games with the ball, without the ball. They can eviscerate opponents. They have Erling Haaland, who is uh, possessive of attributes that maybe only half a dozen footballers in history have had. He says, though, they are also a symptom of the uh, financial structures that are destroying what the game of football was once understood to be. The naive and willfully blind will say there have been other dominant teams, but not like this, there haven't. And he does say... They're about to win five and six. Liverpool did that between 79 and 84. United did it between 96 and 01. But again, this is very different. He says later on, City have spent wisely. They are that rarest of things in football. They are rich and clever. 
Todd Bowley somewhere looked up at the sky and thought, <laughs> my ears burning. Um, but he likens, you know, I suppose the parallels with Manchester United 99 are being drawn. He says if United, there was a, a sense they could slip up at any time. And they did only win the league with 79 points, United. It yeah. was a different time, I appreciate. But still, uh, late comebacks became the defining theme. Mentions FA Cup games such as the win over Liverpool where York and Solskjaer scored in the 88 and 90th minutes. There was the classic against Arsenal, Giggs running the pitch, Keane's red card, Burkamp penalty. They remain classics. He asks, though, does anybody, even now, remember without an effort that City beat Chelsea and Arsenal in the third and fourth rounds of the FA Cup? To which most of us said, no, I don't remember that. Uh, he goes on to say, United's, uh, here's a, a stat, I suppose, their dominance. United's last 15 games in the Premier League, they only had three wins where they won by more than a single goal. Whereas City, and they still have seven of their final 15 games to go, they've already won a six by more than a single goal, including against Arsenal, where they're completely dominant. And he uh, concludes by uh, touching on the breaches in competition. And he says, the Premier League's USP among Europe's big five leagues used to be competitiveness but below City uh, to an extent it still is competitive but it's in danger of tipping into Ligue 1 or Bundesliga territory he says perhaps Newcastle another state-backed uh, side will become notable rivals which presents uh, problems all of its own so uh, the City dominance it does feel very different to anything we've ever seen but before the, in the Premier but League the word, the word dominance though like I, I find it interesting like they haven't dominated the Champions League and they haven't won the Champions League. And like, there's a similar conversation going around Leinster at the moment for very different reasons that Leinster are this all-dominating you know, force. They haven't won the Champions Cup since, 20, since 2018. So like, is this not just a period that City are you know, going through a dominance? Well, Liverpool, of course, won the league as well. It's not like City have been you know, totally destroying everyone else. And if Pep Guardiola was to leave, does that not kind of change things as well like it's it's a perfect storm of having the state backed money unbelievable players unbelievable manager which is the point Jonathan Wilson has made but like what happens when Pep you know kind of yeah, gets tired of this like and if I they win the Champions League you know you'd imagine there's a chance that he could go well that's the that's me done here and does that does then of course the whole thing won't fall apart but are they going to be as dominant I would have my doubts I have to say I would as well and I think increasingly the Premier League will be on the uh, toes of City when it comes to their financial uh, dealings going forward and there's just too much wealth elsewhere in the Premier League for some clubs somewhere not to get it right reasonably often like Liverpool have done in recent seasons so and I I would share your point when Guardiola goes he is a bit of a freak yeah do you love City? do I love no no there's something like Guardiola's genius is about removing unpredictability from football Mm. to the best of his ability and it's kind of it's brilliant and if as a football fan you observe and you watch that kind of little triangle passing that they do and you go that's unbelievably good like I could watch Bernardo Silva all day long but ultimately it's it's kind of dull as well. There's, I, I like the harem scarum. A little bit of harem scarum is good for me. I think it adds to excitement. To the broader point, it's. I mean, look, this argument here, the the uh, city, oh, it's all over. It's kind of reminiscent of take us back two years when the Dubs were winning five in a row, and it was like, oh, they're going to win the next fifteen yeah. All Irelands, and because it is, as, as Kean, and you're absolutely right, it is a perfect storm. You need the money, you need the investment, but you also need the, the tactical nous. You need, and Guardiola is one of the five greatest managers ever to have managed in football. There's 
I think when his day is done, they'll talk about him the way they talk about Cruyff for Herbert Chapman before him. And um, the issue, though, is is that even and, and there's a key point is is that like when Liverpool were dominant from seventy three to eighty nine, mm. Liverpool were the dominant side. They would still lose five games, six games, eight games a season. Nowadays, you're winning the league losing two games. Well, this year is kind of a weird year. I think, that's the the, I think you've hit on the key distinction Yeah. in this era. They, Man City, that is, and Liverpool for a time, yeah. have just made a commonplace to hit 90, 94, 95 90, points. Yeah. And, and so most weekends, it's like, OK, who are they yeah. going to whoop this week? Who weekend? are you going to hammer this year? Yeah. They, and Leinster have done the same. Yeah. And then City will fall in a knockout game in Europe exactly. akin to Leinster. But that doesn't make a lot of Leinster or City's dominance in their respective leagues a touch at all. No, absolutely, and th- th- that's the, the point I was trying to make. But I would imagine City are very similar to Leinster in that it's a little bit different now because the South African teams have changed. You are seeing it's clearly much more difficult to win. But Leinster judge their success off the Champions Cup. Like that is, if they win the URC this year, for example, if they win the URC but lose the Champions Cup final, yeah, that would failure. be exactly that would be a failure. And I would imagine City now are in a similar boat where all their eggs are in the Champions League basket. And again, like, is there not? Is there not a good chance that Real Madrid could knock them out here? There is a decent chance. Yeah. A decent and chance. I feel like that's kind of being overlooked a little bit. And no, then right. if City lose in the Champions League semi-final, I just I would be careful to use the word dominance when they're not sweeping across the board in everything. They're still waiting to win the Champions League. But if you were betting, if you were betting, man, you'd have to put City as prohibitive favourites against Real Madrid. The same happens with Leinster every year. Yeah. Yeah, they like, win the European Cup this they year they hammer everyone before them when it comes to the crunch and then yeah. they're like whoa it, we haven't actually played a team this good I mean obviously Real Madrid and it's a conversation for an entirely different time but like Real Madrid are a weird anomaly of a club they're they such are. a weird they but don't the, the, dominate guess, the Spanish league I guess the point is in the face of a club like City there'll always be some weird club oh. be it Saracens one year yeah. and La Rochelle mm-hmm. the next there'll always be someone who'll rise up and maybe disappears quickly and City akin to Leinster will always be there thereabouts but they may not dominate. And the Dubs example is a is a brilliant example of that as well. Like the conversation is totally changed now around that as well. It no. just it, it, sport works in cycles. Yeah. I mean after I did say that Dublin will win eight out of ten All Ireland's every <laughs> I mean they decade, still might. I still think on balance they'll <laughs> they, win. They at least still six. could. I mean I mean, are they gone in are they favourites for this year's championship? I would make them favourites, yeah. With McCaffrey back and a fit Conor Callahan and Mannion. Yeah. Like and yet this Kerry team with Clifford and, and It's beautifully open. It's a yeah, it's a great championship, but it is odd to think that Dublin, for many pundits, are the favourites, despite the fact that Kerry are the All-Ireland champions and have strengthened their team or certainly not weakened their team from yeah. last year. Mind you, they, Kerry, like Dublin came within a point of beating them in the semi-final without Conor Gallagher last year. So, you know, Dublin are still... Look at you. I know, yeah. I did not think you were uh, raised on the fields <laughs> of... Uh, Listen, raised on the hill, me, Joe. Raised on the hill. <laughs> that just shows anyone can recycle stuff they hear. I I was at the 1983 All-Ireland Final oh, wow, against okay. Galway and I had to leave at half-time because I was in danger of getting crushed in the hill. Were you really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was only small and and I, I got... I, I, I have a ten- How were you then, 20? <laughs> 28 Sorry. no in, in 1983 I was 14 and it was dangerous it was no no for me I was a little kid and I'd gone with well, my I mean, 14 year olds shouldn't be crushed on the hill I, was, I went with my friend Gary Dorman and I had to leave at half time I also get like a bit of kind of in the crowd I remember just the crowd moving you know the hill moving up and down and, and I was just like oh yeah. is that a famous Brian Mullins day yes yeah it's the one where did 
Dublin have three, two cent-offs? Yes, yeah. yes, yes. Right, OK, your credentials Barney are Rock assured. Brian Mullins. <laughs> Poor old Brian Mullins. Just to mention, um, Eddie Pepperell, page 19, is interviewed oh, is by a, yeah. Dave Walsh. So, Eddie Pepperell has a reputation for being, like, the thinking man's golfer. Now, it doesn't take much thinking to garner that reputation. I think it's no. a touch over blow. Would you agree? Yes. OK, but he's still a pretty interesting guy. So He's, uh, f- he's funny. He's funny, and he's self-deprecating, yeah. to be fair. But just to note, if you're if you're interested in your golf, uh, page nineteen, live life and learning to love golf again. I I just hadn't quite realised that Eddie Pepperell has taken a self-imposed hiatus away from the game, because honestly, in a way that I think only golf can, it was driving him insane. So in the early uh, in early February, somewhere between the tournaments in Dubai and Singapore, Eddie Pepperell decided to step away. Three months out for a reset, a run of miscuts brought clarity. So at the Italian Open this week, he returns and he feels ready to see if what he's been doing in peacetime can survive the battlefield. So go back three months, writes David Walsh, Singapore Classic. The memory has stayed with him. 18th, Laguna National Golf Resort, 250-yard carry over the bunker into the wind. Not difficult if you're playing well. Different when you're trying to make the cut. He finds sand. Uh, Standing on that tee, a wave of self-loathing washes over him. We can relate to that moment. Uh, Fiona and I play a bit of golf together. We've we've seen each other at our our most self-loathing. No one cares and few will understand what he does next. In a moment of uncontrollable anger, he holds the shaft of the driver in both hands and smashes it on his knee. It was really time to take a break. Three months on, does it seem to him that breaking clubs isn't the smartest response to adversity? He said, I don't know. Most golfers there would say, yeah, no, it wasn't good. But he's like, I don't know, breaking clubs, I've got no issue with that. Some players don't do it at all. I've broken 100 in my career. Dave Walsh, you've broken 100 clubs? Oh, yeah. I think I did 25 in one year. I did four in one round in Sweden. Now, that is a bit much. It's a lot. Uh, I remember giving my three-wood away and driver to a couple of kids on the last uh, hole, uh, some brothers, and I threw my lob wedge and my sand wedge into the lake on the ninth green, had to play the back nine without a pitching wedge. But then there is a story, I think, which just sums up the insanity of golf. And you have to understand, these guys get tested for clubs all the time. Like, everything is to the nth degree. Walsh brings up 2018 Dunhill Links. Breaks his club. After the round, went to a shop to try and get a reshaft uh, for one of the clubs. They don't have the same shaft I've been using. They have something similar. So I say, okay, go on, stick it in. Better than nothing. Next day, I'm on the par three at the 11th into a breeze, six iron. First time I've ever used this new shaft, I stiffed it. It felt so good. I said to Mick, let's use all these shafts next week at the British Masters and all my clubs. So the following week, holds a five iron, holds a nine iron. He wins the tournament, the first win of his career, all because I broke my six iron at Carnoustie. The new shafts were dramatically different in terms of the way they performed. There's footage of me on the Sunday hitting a four iron and me turning to my caddy and saying, these shafts are unbelievable. So a week before it was chaos, a week later, and I look like the most controlled golfer in the world. This is the essence of the game. This is the mad thing about it. You can't account for it. You can't plan for it. Yeah, that you've you've summarised it exactly right. The madness and and brilliance of golf is. It, I think it's more likely to drive somebody insane than any other sport. Have you ever broken a club though? No, I mean they're too expensive for me. I I I used to play a lot of golf when I was younger, and I'll never forget. I played with a guy who who was also younger at the time as well. Obviously, uh, broke his club during a round. Yeah. I just remember thinking, wow. Like what? Like what? Like they've got some serious, serious issues. Like you said, Joe, it's pretty expensive to. Well, it, it used to be anyway to buy a set of irons. Um, 
just to snap one over your knee is a bit. Uh, the, the grand for these lads, they just get it replaced. Oh yeah, away. Rory's broken one not so long ago with the sheer frustration. The closest I came was I, I, I went and played pitch and put at a recent Christmas with my two brothers who don't play, and of course I lent them my clubs. And uh, middle child brother, my younger brother, it's a par three. This is not a long course; it's like a fifty yard chip. So he takes a, a big swing. Seems to let go of the club. It flies up into a tree and remains in that tree <laughs> to this day. Yeah, I played uh, yesterday in the in my Saturday comp in my club, and the 18th where I play is is that you're kind of your line is you kind of hit it off a you try and hit it off a bunker. So I am just slightly right of the bunker and pulled it a fraction, and I could see it go directly into the bunker. And it was one of those where you're like, and I. I'd had a torrid time of it for a few holes and I took the club and, and I could feel myself bending it in front. And I was just like, like, and you realise, okay, just let it go. But that frustration that Pepperell's talking about, anyone who gets moral about like, oh, they shouldn't be breaking clubs. I feel you have never played golf. Yeah, you yes, don't understand golf. This, like there's a difference between Sergio Garcia, who's the, the terrible terrible enfant terrible of, of modern golf went and took a, took a took a club to a bunker and was like ripping up like if you start damaging course or like banging then I think you have a case to answer but if you damage your own equipment it's on you and that's just the way it goes yeah it like I don't play as much as um, I used to unfortunately but like Golf is so frustrating because it's hole to hole. It can be wildly yeah. inconsistent, and like that's the kind of thing. Yeah, like and like I played in a couple of thirty six hole competitions, and like you know you might go out in the morning and play well, and then you know you have your lunch and then you're going out for your second eighteen, and it's like you've you didn't play at all. Like so, um, I can definitely relate to that as well in terms of the frustrations that it has because well, it would drive you crazy for those guys. I think because they're doing it day in day out they stop appreciating the beauty of the courses they stop mm-hmm. appreciating the lovely softness of an expensive Pro V1 they stop appreciating the new clothes and the lovely equipment and they are just frayed they're just frayed and it's like the sun coming down on them and it just woof. I would say I would say it's got to be the most frustrating sport Oh, 100%. I think, well, just finally, yeah. just worth pointing out, it's not just Eddie Pepperell, what makes him such an interesting is his, is his honesty, but also as well is his analysis of what's going on in golf and, and golf fans will know about the, the threat posed by the Live yeah. Golf Tour, etc. His, his commentary on it just feels correct. It feels very... It, and I don't mean it's like on the moral side of the argument. I just mean his analysis just seems very spot on. Well, very, and it's it's mentioned in the piece yeah. when Henrik Stenson abandoned his Ryder Cup captaincy to go to live and you know laid out all the many reasons and it's important to grow the game. Pepperell on Twitter just said, Henrik, I've no problem with you going, but just admit it's for the bucket, <laughs> full, bucket of cash. full of cash. Like exactly, we understand that. Like don't lie. Yeah. And he's had and I, various Twitter spats with the live types for yeah. that reason. His Twitter is enjoyable. He's yeah. brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So uh, that is us done. Thank you both so much. Keen Tracy of the Irish Independent, Fionn Davenport, uh, travel journalist, uh, part of the Golf Weekly team as well. You're both very welcome. To anybody who joined us late in our social channels, we know we're wearing the same coloured shirts. <laughs> we, we, we have spotted that too. It wasn't planned. Or was it? Uh, fellas, thank you very much. Thanks, Thanks Joe. Done. Cheers, Joe. The Sunday Papers on Off The Ball.